0: Hello and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer and I run a website called Production Advice where I aim to help you get the best results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And joining me as always this week is John Tidy. John, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great today.
0: Excellent. So it's about time that we had another questions and answers episode. Lots of people sending us in questions all the time just to us in general and in response to things that we've kind of talked about on the show before we thought we would answer a few more of those in this episode uh so john maybe you could uh, start with the first question first
1: question comes from ray what is the official slash unofficial understanding of where bass ends and mid-range kicks in i know it is very blurry area but could you give a rough estimate for me it's it's around 300 hertz i'd say
0: oh interesting I, no, I'd say much lower. I think like 150 hertz for me is the top end of the bass. Okay. And after that, I start thinking of it as low mids. But I think that's the key. I mean, for me, it's just the way that we think about it. I don't know. Do you know the, what's, what frequency is a kind of the top string on a bass guitar? It's well above 150 or even 200 or 300 hertz, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's it's quite
1: it's a pretty high yeah, frequency. Mid range for sure. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I think. If I'm cutting the bass out of, let's say, guitars or something like that, I could cut pretty steep until it sounds like it's only mid-range and top. And so, yeah, I, I would stop 250 to 300 hertz. Um, I know when you do your crossover for a multiband compressor, it's somewhere around 200, isn't it?
0: A little bit lower, yeah. I think I think kind of 150, 160. Okay. Um, kind of that's tricky because, obviously, the, the crossovers are quite shallow yeah so they extend a fair way up and down in frequency and you know in that crossover range you have two different compressors working which is kind of which is what you have to be careful with the crossover in a multiband um so that you don't have those two things kind of fighting against each other but uh yeah i think well there you go somewhere <laughs> somewhere ray between 150 and 300 hertz maybe um
1: somewhere below 20000 hertz <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, definitely below,
1: definitely below 500, definitely below 400.
0: (laughs) This is our most (laughs) wishy-washy answer to a question ever,
1: but also it doesn't really matter. It's not like, it's not going to hurt anything.
0: It can be important when you're talking to clients, you know, if somebody says to you, Oh, you know, I feel like this is really bass heavy. That makes me think of the subs all the way up to kind of, yeah, maybe 200 Hertz but sometimes, you know, they might be thinking of it much higher up. Um, they might be, somebody might say bass heavy, and they mean there's too much bass guitar in the mix just generally, and it's, it's playing in a higher register. So, you know, it, it. I understand that it can be all of these terms that we use, you know, are just kind of hand-waving to a certain extent, aren't they? Um, and you just do your best to kind of establish some common ground. I quite often find myself um, kind of <laughs> humming and singing to people in attended sessions, you know, I'll, rather than, try and name the frequencies or anything else i'll just kind of you know go. oh it's kind of ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> whatever the frequency is that i'm talking about that's a pretty universal language that most people understand i love it when you
1: send me an eq note like take down minus six at 300 like done i don't even need to argue don't even need to, th- need to think about it because i know that you <laughs> you've got the exact frequency yet.
0: well num- numbers are precise yeah,
1: yeah you give me precise numbers and i don't need to think about it
0: yeah, well and and that's based I mean okay so that that's kind of another little interesting take on the question which is I think the reason that I do that is that in the past I have said to people oh it sounds a bit bassy or hmm. you know there's a bit of a resonance in the mid range and somebody will do something that's completely different than what I was thinking about yeah. might not necessarily be a bad thing or it was where I would say that was incorrect it's just not what I meant um so yeah it, it kind of to avoid all of that kind of confusion it's much easier to just kind of sweep around and find the frequency that you're talking about um i do remember one uh case where i had mixed a live album i think it might have been black sabbath and um my colleague simon mastered it and uh called me in to to see what i thought and i kind of stood there for a few minutes listening and then i said yeah i think it needs a little bit more about 73 hertz and he pounded his forehead in frustration was like I just took out a few dBs at 73 hertz. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm always that accurate with naming frequencies, but in, in that case, I, I nailed it. Um, so, yeah, it's, I guess, I mean, that's another possible answer, right, is kind of, there is no answer. So talking about bass and mids and tops can only ever be an approximation.
1: Depends on how many times you want to divide it, right? If, if, yeah. If, if it's just mid-range as a as a three band division for me it's like three hundred and then between three hundred and and i don't know five k maybe
0: yeah yeah five k is the top of the upper mids, yeah um yeah but if, but the boundary, if there's a separate
1: lower mid, then I might have like or like a base mid or something like that like if mid ranges divide into three, then the lowest base would be you know up to. I don't know, up to 80. So, yeah, I mean, and it's it's certainly subjective. And
0: Are you saying that the frequency would move depending on whether you were thinking about mid-range or bass? Because I think that's probably what is the case for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I have five bands, then where I consider mid to start would be different than if I only have three.
0: Okay, folks, so if you're listening to this on social media somewhere from a link or whatever, please jump in in the comments and uh, let us know on a scale of 1 to 10 whether this was the most useless answer we've ever given to a question ever. think it probably might be. but Certainly a contender. <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> right, let's have another question.
1: All right, this one comes from Jacob. I've got a question about EQ balance. I have a reply from a mastering engineer who said that I got too much high-end on my mix. I sure like air on my music, but maybe I overdid it. But I disagreed with him on this one, and he replied that he wanted to use a spectrum analyzer to have equal for much of the frequencies so that the peaks uh, are a straight line of all frequencies. So my question is, is this true? Should I try to master my songs after this visual straight line in the spectrum analyzer, or is it okay if the high end, for example 10k and up, pokes up or down 1 or 2 dB? And is it the same with the mids and low end?
0: So I think there, there are there kind of two sections to my reply to that, to our reply to that, yeah. Jacob, which the first thing is you have to be very careful because different analyzers can show you a different slope in the graph. So if you take something where, like, say you take white noise, which is flat across the frequency spectrum, some analyzers will show you a flat EQ curve running across the spectrum, But some of them will show that that has proportionally more high end in it and some will show that there's proportionally more low end in it um and some analyzers uh and for example the voxengo span which is a a free analyzer uh, that i know allows you to adjust this can you can choose what the slope of the graph should be to affect how it looks so maybe on some analyzers you should be aiming for something that is more or less flat across the frequency range. But on the analyzers that I tend to use, on the one that's in WaveLab, and I'm pretty sure in Isotope Insight as well, I tend to aim more for something where I'm seeing more bass and then a, a kind of a gentle roll off in the the very high frequencies. Um, and I think it's similar for you, isn't it, John?
1: Yeah, I don't think about it a lot, but I think it'd sound very bright if I was if it was equal. Uh, like totally flat frequency response from your mix. So if there, so it's not more bass than highs, or if your highs are even a couple dB above the mid-range in the bass, I think it would sound very bright, uh, thin, shrill, all those.
0: Right. I'm imagining that the analyzer that you're looking at, uh, when you say that, John, probably is one that would show uh, more energy in the low, lower frequencies when something sounds balanced to our ears.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I've seen things with a, like a minus a 6 dB guide where from 1K up, it's a, a slope downward, but only like a fairly gentle slope down. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that sounds more balanced.
0: I mean, I think one thing I can say for sure is that, I mean, I was taught as a trainee that if i was going to use an analyzer to kind of help give me feedback on what i was hearing which is i think the way that i recommend people use them uh yeah you should definitely start to see a roll off well especially in acoustic music um anything that was kind of recorded uh you know from real instruments if there's just as much high frequency content say above 10k um as there is lower down that is almost certainly going to sound too bright that Whatever the analyzer you're using, I think you should see a gentle roll off from about 10k upwards. Um, I guess a possible exception to that could be, you know, kind of really full on electronica or or something with, that has lots of processed sounds where there's, there's a kind of deliberate, very high intensity, high frequency content um, in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the other thing, the other aspect of this is, I mean, so different analyzers show you different things. But the other thing is, yes, it's absolutely okay to have some variation in there because, I mean, we've been kind of – we're talking very theoretically, but – and I mentioned pink noise or white noise earlier. You know, those are artificial signals that have energy content at all the frequencies in the spectrum. But if you think of, let's say, uh, a female singer accompanied just by stand-up bass, you know, kind of a jazz thing, um, or maybe acoustic guitar and voice – Those are two examples where you don't have all of the frequencies equally represented at all. Um, So, you know, if acoustic guitar and voice, there's not going to be any really low bass, and there probably isn't any really high top in there either. So in that case, you absolutely shouldn't aim for the the frequency response to be flat because that wouldn't sound natural. So if the mix does have kind of, frequencies represented across the the spectrum so you have a full arrangement i guess those guidelines make more sense um but you're still allowed to have little variations i mean jacob asked whether you know one or two dbs up or down i would say absolutely i mean that's just for me that's just to do with the character of the mix rather mm-hmm. than you know if you if i look at the analyzer and it's i'm thinking this is a full arrangement and there's a big dip at i don't know 100 hertz or 500 hertz or whatever, I would certainly experiment with just kind of lifting that frequency range to see how it sounded, to see if there was, you know, a uh, kind of a hole in the frequency spectrum because of the monitoring that they were using when they recorded and mixed it, uh, and experiment with that to see if it made it sound better. Um, but you also need to be open to the fact you're just seeing the natural properties of of the arrangement, of the, of the performance.
1: I think also if you want to use the approach of using an analyzer and using like a, a three dB or a six d B guide, you have to have your uh the analyzer set to the pretty much the slowest setting possible. So that it's really showing you an average over time of what's actually there rather than if you're looking at it um as a you know, sort of like fast like a peak meter for all frequencies, that's just not gonna work for you.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: You'll make it way too bright.
0: Well, it'll it, and it makes it way too hard to read. I mean, I, I think the other thing that I would say is that in my experience, analyzers like this, you know, they're really nice to look at. And they're great, yeah, for getting a general um, example. I mean, in the, the Home Mastering EQ video series, I suggest people use Voxengo Span because it's a free analyzer. So, you know, everybody doing the course is able to kind of have the, the same tool at their disposal so they can see what I'm talking about. Um, and that has a default slope, I think, of 45 um which i suggest people reduce to 3 dB but even so i the other thing i suggest is they put it in the mastering mode which is the slowest mode so all of that fine detail of the frequency response disappears you know there are analyzers out there where you can you can see the individual harmonics of a trumpet note kind of leaping up out of the the frequency spectrum when it plays a sustained note that stuff is is too fast and too detailed to to be helpful and when you've slowed it down to the point where it's showing you a much more smoothed much more averaged um response I don't think you can pick out those fine details. I mean, there have been lots of times where I'm kind of mastering something and thinking, oh, it doesn't quite sound right. And I'm kind of absent-mindedly staring at the spectrum and it looks okay. And then I realize that, oh, just a lift of a dB at 100 hertz or whatever makes all of the difference. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of the, like, um, the frequency curves on the FabFilter plugins, you can see before and after. And quite often there's hardly any visible difference between the before and after in the curve but it sounds completely different. So I think analyzers, you know, are generally, they're kind of useful to, as a sanity check, you know, to stop you from getting tired ears and as a way of assessing what your reference tracks um, look like. And you can kind of compare those with the way that yours look and think about how the differences in sound might kind of connect, whether you can learn anything from that. But that's about all you can do. I mean, it's like those EQ matching plugins where you supposedly read the EQ curve from one thing and then make another thing fit that EQ curve. I've the only time I've ever had any success with those is when I have two different versions of the same master and I'm trying to make one or other of them match kind of mm-hmm. for technical reasons. Um creatively, I don't really think that makes much sense at all. <laughs> don't know about you.
1: I've had a bit of luck with it, with the uh equivocate plugin.
0: Okay, I haven't used that one.
1: But I I'd always reduce the amount of matching to like 70% or something like that. Right. It's, it's really only helpful if one thing is way out from the rest of the album. The, Oh, the other thing we didn't even talk about at all was reference mixes. So absolutely use reference mixes. And if it, if they sound right, look at them on the analyzer and see where the high end fits there. And if it, is it flat? Is it six DB down the three DB down or four and a half DB down? Um, you know, that's, that's your standard and, and you don't want to do better than them necessarily. Like in, in terms of frequency response, you can't beat their mix by making it brighter. It's just going to sound unbalanced everywhere you listen to it.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And also to use lots of different reference tracks, um, yeah. because even out of stuff that you think sounds fantastic, you'll find there's a surprising variety. There's kind of a huge range of what it's possible to record. And then there's quite a narrow range of what we might choose to make things sound like when they're mastered. But within that, there's still a huge amount of scope for, for taste um, and for artistic decisions. So, uh-huh. yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good. You know, listen to and look at a lot of reference tracks to get an idea. I mean, that way you don't need to know what the correct number for your particular analyzer is. You know, You just look at what it's telling you, and that will give you an idea maybe what you should be aiming for with your own music. And certainly if they're radically different, that would ring alarm bells with me. You know, if you're listening to stuff and it sounds great and you see one thing and then you listen to yours and it shows something completely different and they're sort of similar musically, then maybe you should be listening more intently and kind of going, well, maybe is mine too bright or not bright enough? Um, I think if it's a mastering engineer, Jacob, you would hope that his or her opinion is, is reliable, you know, is trustworthy. After all, that's, that's what you're paying them for, um, is to give you that objectivity. Uh, so, yeah, maybe the next step would be to compare your mix with some reference material in a similar genre and listen to how they sound, look at how they read on the meters. Having said that, again, if it's little variations of a few DBs here and there, I think that probably falls within the the realms of uh, you know musical differences rather than necessarily correct or incorrect.
1: Next question comes from Andrew. What is your view on intentionally adding saturation to a master and which processes do you rely on for this, if at all?
0: It's a valid thing to do. And I do it sometimes. I don't do it often. um, Mainly because most of the stuff I get in these days already has too much of that stuff for my taste. You know, I think, uh, you know, it was a thing back in the sixties and seventies when everybody was recording to analog tape. Um, Then it went away in the kind of eighties where everything got very clean and clinical and digital started to come online and then i think there's been a reaction to that where now the plugins can emulate it and so people are using console emulations and tape emulations and all the rest of it and i just think everybody's using way too much of it and in terms of what i use it it depends um i do have a few of the the tape simulation plugins that i use sometimes the soft clip in the tc electronic mastering limiter i really Like, it doesn't really have an intense kind of saturation feel, but it has that soft clipping property that I've talked about before. Uh, One affordable one that I've tried that can give you quite good results is uh, K-Clip, which I think is made by Kazrog. How about you, John?
1: If I'm using clipping for saturation, I'll use LBC Audio Clip Shifter. Really like that one. If I'm going for like a tape sound, then I'll use Tone Booster's Real Bus. They're subtle enough that you can use them in mastering and uh, versatile enough that they'll work for a mix as well.
0: Interesting. I haven't tried either of those, actually.
1: And I should also say, the the stuff in the in the Ozone, I find pretty good, especially because you can mix it per band and overall you can just scale it back. And so I, I, I've gotten pretty good at using that one as well. The Exciter module, yeah.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think anybody who's got some nice analog uh, gear to play with would probably choose to use that uh you know there's nothing like the real thing so i guess what'll be most useful for people is is talking about digital stuff yeah i've used the ozone things as well i like the stuff that doesn't it isn't too extreme so just just kind just of take two examples lots of people like the slate virtual tape machine is that what it's called vt vtm yeah vtm plug-in mm-hmm. i found it's okay although i find it kind of it goes over the top a bit quickly for me it's kind of i'm pushing it and thinking oh it's a bit subtle and then i go a little bit further and suddenly it's distorting too much for my taste
1: i, f- I found that with the waves one really bad
0: oh, okay which waves one because i was going to say the one that i quite like is the uh the waves kramer tape i think
1: it was the kramer tape but huh. it, it's <laughs> it's because it's expecting an analog level like a like a line level signal not like you can't use it uh, the way that we master stuff is usually to to crank up the levels at the beginning of the chain, mm-hmm. and you can't do that with this. you got to trim it back by 20 dB before going into this and then bump it back up.
0: Right, or or you add it kind of earlier in the chain.
1: Yeah, yeah, so you have to be really careful with the levels or it's just way over the top. So, And I don't find that with some of the other ones. I, I find the other ones are just more subtle.
0: The thing I like about the Kramer tape, though, is that it doesn't change too much else. It's mainly saturation that I get from that, whereas the thing that I find with the Slate is that it has quite a dramatic effect on the EQ. Okay. Which I think is what quite a lot of people like about it, um, yeah. is that it kind of gives you that kind of nice solidity in the low end. Um, but I, it's, a, it's a funny thing with me. It tends to be that saturation is probably the last thing that I would consider adding to a master. You know, So I start off, it's level, it's EQ, it's dynamics... And then if I think, oh, maybe it needs a little bit of something, kind of a little bit of grit, a little bit of something to soften it up or aggression or whatever, um, if I then put something on and it dramatically changes the EQ, I'm likely to just kind of go, oh, no, not that, um, just because it's too much at that stage in the in the process. Um, so that's that's kind of not to say there's anything wrong with the VTM as such. It's just it doesn't work that well for my workflow. But then maybe it's intended more as a, a kind of a mix bus process when people are, mixing rather than a mastering tool
1: yeah uh what i like about the the tone boosters real bus is that there's five or six different models of of tape that it emulates and i find that a lot of them are very sort of smooth sounding and you can mix in a lot of other uh elements like i I would never use wow and flutter on a as an effect on a master No, No, agreed and i would Turn down all the noise and and things like that, but you can, uh, you can apply soft clipping there. You can adjust the amount of saturation. There's a MS control even for it. So
0: their stuff is pretty affordable as well, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. It's very affordable. So um, yeah, I, I've been using their out. stuff for quite a while, and yeah, just it sort of adds like a smoothness more than like a distortion to it. So I, I find that if I have a like a favorite. Tape model. I might put that on early in the uh, in the process of mastering the album, only when I know that it needs some warming up or smoothing and things like that. And I kind of mix or master into that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I would. So I, I want to finish this off by saying that I maybe do this. I'm going to say one in twenty masters. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a last resort for me. I would always prefer to achieve. Those kind of effects. I feel like it, it's it, it's getting almost it's it's almost past the remit of the mastering engineer. Sometimes there's stuff that just comes in, like in the home mastering masterclass course. There's a song that I do, which it's a metal track, and it sounds great, but it's just really really clean, and it just immediately said to me, oh no, this just needs to sound a bit more gritty, you know, a little bit more aggressive. Um, but that's it's definitely the exception rather than the rule.
1: Yeah, certainly now a lot of people have the slate bundle or. Other sets of plugins and and they've got console and tape saturation on every track and in mastering you're either undoing a lot of that stuff or it's already audible distortion so
0: yeah yeah well it's really easy to overdo at the mixing stage I think I mean it Mm -hmm. you know every so often somebody sends me something that that's got too much of that stuff in there and I ask for a cleaner version and then I end up adding some of what they've done back in but just yeah. less of it. Um and they're always happier. It's usually if somebody has put anything other than a tiny amount of that stuff into the into the mix it's too much. Um and I think you know that's that's something just to be I think moderation is
1: is the key. I think it's hard to hear a lot of times as well. Well
0: that's I think that's another thing. Yeah, this stuff what people are looking for is quite subtle, but the the temptation is to keep adding it until you can hear it, Um, by which point you might well have gone too far. Uh, Cool. What was the next question?
1: Next question comes from Robert Randolph. What is the most difficult project you've worked on and how did that change your workflow for future work?
0: (laughs) John and I were chatting about this just before we started recording um, and we decided there's two aspects of this. So uh, one is difficult from the technical aspects and we can talk about that in a second. I think the thing that sprang to both of our minds is is the client relationship can make projects difficult uh john what was the example you were thinking of
1: so i i was doing a remastering project for some stuff that was uh recorded i don't know 60 70 years ago or something like that mm-hmm. um and it was you know it was printed to cds back in the the 80s 90s and we're doing a new compilation of it and stuff like that. So I'm I'm doing my work and then I send him stuff to listen to. And then he has computer problems at the same time. And he thinks that I'm sending him a virus. So that made things <laughs> a little hectic. And um, and the, the other thing is he couldn't hear a lot of the changes I was making because he's like 90% deaf. So he's, <laughs> he's gotta like yell at me through the phone or I'm gonna yell so he could hear. <laughs> so it was, I mean, it was, it was a fun project we're all happy with how it turned out by like, is it was most challenge. of the problems were, were just communication rather than, uh, you know, technical stuff that I was working on.
0: See, you saying that has reminded me of another particular project I had where I had the exact opposite problem, which was that the client was so sensitive to any changes that I made. Um, when he came into it telling me that he'd already been to three or four mastering engineers and they'd all wanted to be their approach had been too radical for him. It was taking the stuff too far away from the mix. He wanted to put that behind him, um, so he was attending the session with me. And this this time, it was all going to be different. So I went in very, very softly, softly. Um, and initially, he was quite happy. I think we got through an entire session where you know I did my usual kind of adjustments of a few dBs, you know, at various points in the frequency spectrum. Probably very limited, uh, very minimal dynamic work to be done on it. And and I think he was happy and he went away. But I think then he came back three or four times. And by the end, we were debating the pros and cons of like plus 0.3 dB <laughs> at certain frequencies. But the problem was he genuinely could hear what was happening. You know, it, he just got so used to the mixes over such a long period of time. He just couldn't tolerate any kind of... So I forget whether I ended up refunding him or whether he was happy with the tiny little changes that we eventually made. But uh, that was a challenge. And more generally... I think that I'm not going to name any names, but there's at least one client I can think of who with the best will in the world, what he was doing wasn't that great. Um, But he could hit and and he could hear that it wasn't that great. He knew that it wasn't that great. It wasn't reaching the point that he had in his mind for it, but he refused to accept that I couldn't fix it for him. (laughs) Um, So, Uh you know, you had this kind of impossible situation where he's going, yeah, but I want it to be more like this. And I kind of, well, I've, done what I can. If you want it to be any more then you're going to have, maybe you could go back to the mix or, you know, work on. And that was just kind of impossible. It's like agony because you, you know, there there are clients where it's bad and they don't know that it's bad. So you make an improvement and it sounds better to them because it, it is better to them. The fact that it's still bad doesn't matter because everybody's happy. Um, but when the client knows that it's bad and is kind of resentful of you because you haven't made it better but there's no way you can make it better that's that's a bit of a a nightmare scenario um Mm. what about the technical aspects
1: i I feel like i've mentioned this a couple times already in previous shows but just um doing a lot of things where where i'm super nitpicky about what i'm hearing i'm sending files into isotope rx using spectral repair to to remove mouth clicks and things like that DSing and and all that kind of stuff. And just being like super critical of it on my end and client, maybe not so much. <laughs> what was good about that is that it taught me that I can do that. And that like I, I learned through the process of you know hearing this these things that bothered me, I found out how I could fix it. I found out how I could do it quickly for the next time. And now it's not so much of a problem to go and do that, I know that I can do the whole song pretty quickly and it's worth it as well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a useful lesson. I mean, I think and what I'm hearing is that you know, you're kind of doing work that you are maybe not going to be able to bill the client for because you feel that it's worthwhile and that the project deserves it, but they're not necessarily going to perceive that as money well spent. Um,
1: but I don't, I don't do hourly for mastering, so.
0: Okay. Well, no, neither do I actually, although if something goes way over, I mean, there, I can think of restoration projects that I've done where I can hear all kinds of problems that the client is just not concerned about. And I'm kind of thinking, but there are people who are going to listen to this, who are going to be upset by these things. I mean, that's another, that's a tricky situation. In both cases, the the positive side of it is, yeah, we get to hone our skills. You know, we get to mm-hmm. um, learn how to deal with those things, work with them more effectively and and figure out the limits as well of what you can and can't do. And when it is worth putting the effort in and when it's not.
1: Yeah, and another thing I learned—I think it was even on the same session—how to extend the length of a song. I, I the, the tail end of the song, it was just cut off in their mix, and mm-hmm. we couldn't go back to the original mix and, and, you know, change that end marker to make it longer. So I found a way to make it fade out smoothly, and not just by making it shorter. I had to find a way to make it longer by, I think, I think, I think, I made the tail end three times longer. And fade it really? out smoothly. Yeah,
0: was that? Did you like do an edit to extend the?
1: Yeah, it was like um, cut the last half of what was there, duplicate it, and then uh, turn it down. I think it was twelve dB, and then re- kept kept repeating that. So I take half of that and then move it over and crossfade it by half, and then turn that down to twenty four, and then the next one, you know, down to like sixty four. Yeah, or something like that
0: i've i've done that and that's uh it's satisfying when you get it right but it's so time consuming because (laughs) trying to get it to sound smooth between all of those sections that you're editing together can be a real nightmare
1: and and it's like really low level stuff at that point but like it's got to be right
0: it's got to be right and yeah when it's well the thing is when it's not right it just sounds completely wrong it's Mm -hmm. it's like surprising it's almost like the more subtle it gets the more obvious it is somehow
1: and it was it was critical for me to get that right so that I could get the timing of the next song to start right. Yep yep,
0: yep. that's classic examples. I've got um one I'm actually holding here. It's a box set of sandy Denny, uh English folk singer, uh b b c sessions, so peel sessions, but also earlier. I remember this being an incredibly challenging job because of the variety of sources. there was stuff that came off analog reels, there was stuff that came off. Um, Back in the day, the BBC would record stuff to transcription discs. So basically straight down to it. wasn't vinyl, but uh, I don't know, maybe it was shellac or some other. uh, Cut live, basically. So it's kind of like the only version of it that exists was on something that sounds worse than vinyl. Um, And some of these were bathed in hiss. um, And this was before Isotope RX was around. So we had some pretty primitive denoising materials i think denoising is one of the most challenging things i come up against because as soon as you start using it to the point where you get a substantial reduction in noise you start hearing more artifacts which can be much more distracting than the noise was in the first place i think it's a general rule with me that the toughest stuff is where you start where i start going around in circles so with these you know i would do an eq master and then I'd run it through the, the denoising processing. And then I would tweak the EQ because you'd lost a little bit of that, the high-end kind of feel of it from the denoising process. And then the noise would become more noticeable again. So you'd denoise it a bit more, but then you'd listen to it and there were too many artifacts and you kind of go... And I just remember, I think maybe a week that I spent on this. It's a four CD set. And I think I probably, it was like maybe a week of, you know, working till 2 a.m. to try and get this thing done for the deadline. Um and yeah, it had everything. It had clicks, it had dropouts, it had hum, buzz, noise, uh, you know, everything. When I listen to it now, a lot of it still sounds really rough, but I can it's still kind of satisfying because I know how much worse it sounded before that. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: The last thing I would say on this topic is those are the most difficult projects, but again, another thing you can learn from working on them over time. the more mastering you do, you get better at assessing how good something can be is going to be when you first listen to it. you know, when you first start out, you want everything to sound like I don't know Pink Floyd or whatever the ultimate in sound quality is, and that's just not going to happen. There are some things that are never going to sound. I mean, you know, even in, like, say, a, a more kind of indie or lo-fi genre, you can't make everything sound like the best of the best. Uh, and figuring out that balancing act of uh, the kind of the, the cost-benefit ratio. Yes, I could spend another two hours tweaking the EQ on this song, but will it really sound twice as good? Or am I better served in the project by just moving on to the next thing? Um, it's not to say you should ever give up. I think I've talked about this before. There's this kind of weird balancing act of not wasting effort trying to get something to sound better than it has the potential to, but at the same time not giving up on something that doesn't quite sound right um, and kind of finding the perfect balance between those two. I think I think that's one of the big things that makes a difference between, you know, a pro engineer and uh, someone who does some mastering or who, you know, likes to enjoys mastering kind of a, as a hobby or out of for their own satisfaction is becoming more time effective in terms of what you do just because you're able to kind of hear something and go okay i can get this there and that's that's what's going to serve it well and then i can move on to the next thing um which is maybe a slightly dull lesson to learn but it's extremely useful <laughs> does that ring true for you do you think do you feel like at, the, at this point you can listen to something and think, yeah, I'm going to be able to get this, you know, however far it's going to go? Or is it still something of an exploration?
1: I can usually see the potential and I can start thinking about EQ changes. Often I, I can hardly resist bringing it into Reaper and, and throw an EQ on or a limiter and and just start tweaking it as I'm actually critiquing it or whatever, so... Um, I, I usually have a good idea of frequency balance and things like that that needs to be corrected. I should say I'm still at the point where sometimes I don't know what I'm going to get until I start using the EQ. Well, that's the same for me, actually. Like how much something's going to clean up if I take out this frequency or you know, how, how is a 1 dB high shelf going to affect the overall sound of this song?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's something that's still the same for me, even after all of these years, I, you know, you start to get an instinct where you can kind of listen to something and go, Oh yeah, no, I can definitely help that out. Uh-huh. But, but, but you never quite know quite how far you're going to be able to take it. You know, sometimes you go in and you just kind of notch out that EQ or whatever it is, and it just transforms the whole thing. And other times you go in and you, you, you make the adjustment and actually, well, that's a better, but something else is worse. And it you, you end up just, it's kind of like chasing bubbles under kind of plastic. <laughs> What's what's the word i'm looking for no idea (laughs) okay you know that transparent plastic that they cover books in in schools to protect the covers yeah but you end up with a little air bubble in it so you put your thumb on it try and smooth it out and you just end up pushing the air bubbles around you can never so maybe you could get like a a needle and
1: (laughs) that is the correct thing to do yeah that's not off topic at all
0: (laughs) no that's not off topic at all
1: we should wrap up i gotta go
0: okay absolutely Thanks again to everybody for sending questions, John. Thanks for helping me answer them. Please head over to themasteringshow.com and sign up for the email list if you want to be notified of future episodes and any special offers or unusual uh, events that we might be putting together. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. Thanks to John for editing and mixing the show. My pleasure. And thanks for listening.